Exactly. We like waste a lot of content. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Ones Ready podcast. You're the T Rube, and uh, we're just uh, shit talking. Sure, I'll just yeah, say that just, already. I'll just go ahead and cuss and get us get it flagged already. Um, so we've got Jonathan Howard, a prior CCT, with us. Appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, appreciate you guys having me on. Happy to be here. Yeah, man. Like, dude, you want to talk about uh, a one hell of a life you're living? We'll just say that. Um, it, it, I think it, it shows that hard work and really does pay off. And let's let's talk about like we get a question a lot, right? And I'm gonna go right into it because 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 we get the question so often is how do skills from you know being a cct being an s uh, an sr dude a pj how do those skills that you're that you get in the pipeline or even on team or or out during real world deployments and operations how do those skills translate to the outside yeah no it's it's, it's a good question right because i get asked kind of the question a lot it's like how do you go from being an operator to a real estate guy right like they're just like, what's what's that connection there? And, and I see this with a lot of operators that get out, but like for me specifically, that's that, that most important skill set that we have, it's really it's the mind, right? Like I remember I remember one of my instructors said something. He was like, Do you know like what our, our our best weapon is? And everyone's like, Oh, like I don't know, like an A10 or my gun, and this. And he's like, No, it's your mind, right? And we're like, Oh, yeah, like you know. So it's, it's the mind, right? Cause like when I got into, into the real estate industry, people are like, why are you doing that? There's so much competition and they're right. There is so much competition in the real estate industry, but it's that mindset that we don't even realize we're developing in special operations because we're around such strong mentors, strong people. And it's the work ethic, right? A lot of people think working hard is maybe four or five hours a day, eight to five. And then I tell people like, hey, you know, we literally might be going two hours of sleep a night, right? And not just for one or two nights. It could be weeks and months and months and pretty much almost years for what we do. So getting out there and just crushing it and basically having that I'm never going to quit attitude and just going, going, going. And it, it sounds that simple, but in the regular civilian world, people have never been challenged to the level that we've been challenged as operators. So when what they think is hard, I, I would usually consider, oh, this is very easy for me, right? Even like when I was doing my, my remodeling on my properties, even when I was still active duty, I would, I'd be there at the two, three, I'd leave the work. I'd go to my remodel property. I'm literally scraping popcorn ceilings till 11 o'clock at night, you know, and I'm just making it work. I'm remodeling all the time. I'm working. And then it pays off. Most people will not do that. You know, four o'clock hits, I'm done. They're looking to go to the bar, things like that. And it's just, it's the work ethic and mindset, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm at a real estate conference, as you guys know, here in Destin right now. And the question I got asked a lot was like, who did you go to for mindset trading? Who, like, what books were you reading? Like, what podcasts were you reading? Like, who, who was your coach for? For mindset. And I never really been asked that, but I know like mindset is a hot topic on social media right now. And, and I was kind of like, you know, 
I didn't really go to anyone for a mindset. I was just around harder men than me, right? Like I was around guys that had been there, done it, had experienced. And being around them is what molded me. It wasn't one certain individual. Like I had so many mentors like in, in ST that it just, you become what you're around, right? And I just started becoming like those people without even realizing it until I got outside that environment. So, yeah, I, th- I would say that's the best, the best skill set you get to go into anything outside. So well, you hear that a lot, uh, you know, and there's a probably a bunch of them. You know, the, I'd say the most common one is the iron sharpens iron kind of thing. Yeah. But um, like, if anybody's from my experience, anybody that kind of has played sports and you know, you're, you're playing against a team or on a team that is significant. You know that they are more skillful for skillful than you are, which, you know, is my life basically <laughs> surrounding mm-hmm. myself with people that are just better than me. And it, it helps you, you know, level up. It helps you perform better. Um, even if it's only, you know, a few percentages, you just, you will just perform better and you will yeah. always continue to, 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 keep trying to get after it so it's very true we yeah so like team sports like team sports and like what we did st like combat control in the military like being on team as operators it's it goes hand in hand right like i remember like in like playing football like i was a defensive tackle in high school right and if i felt a little sorry for myself on one play one individual can make that play go bad right so like if i'm like oh i'm a little tired I'm not just going to like go full force on this guy and then, oh, bam, running back just blew by me just for a touchdown. It's like, oh, you like you have to give it all 100% all the time. And you see that with like teams. Well, you feel those effects if you don't give it all on a team sport. And I can always like, I'm pretty good at recognizing when people didn't play team sports. Um, and like the business world, you're just like, oh, this guy definitely never played team sports because he's never been in a tough situation where his decisions are going to affect other people. So, and that, and that's like in, on the teams, you make one bad move, man, like it's, it's affecting everybody. Oh, it could be catastrophic life, limb, eyesight, death of yourself, death of other people. Like that was something I didn't, I never understood because when you're getting smoked, when you're in the pipeline as a young cone, you're like, man, I'm tired of getting punished because of this guy, right? You're like, you just don't understand it. You're like, oh man, like why are we, why are they always punishing the whole team for one guy? But then you, you realize when you get older, you're like, it's, it's what that is. That one guy is, is catastrophic for everybody. But when you're, you know, when you're just getting smoke, you don't, you don't see the big picture. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially for the air force guys, right? I think we're more crazy about it than anybody. Cause like, we're going to send you out as an individual to take care of a team of, yeah. you know, other service folks. And they're looking at you as the, you know, technical expert in whatever you're doing to make the call to, you know, do the right things and all these other things. And so I, I think, uh, yeah, it, one mistake is, is, you know, we, we, we harp pretty hard on it, you know, in, in the pipeline. Oh yeah. And, and, and we have to, right? Like I always tell people like, man, like you're the air force guy showing up. Like you, you can't be the small weak guy. You know, you can't be like just the average guy. Easy. Yeah. Cause you're, She's you're, you're already right here. <laughs> well, I mean like, you know, you're, you're already the one you're already getting picked on the day you show up. Right. Like all oh, air force yeah. guys here. Right. So like we have to be really, we have to excel. Right. Like we can't be the guy falling out of a, 
out of a you know a ruck or something like that. Like if a if another SF guy gets a little tired and he falls behind, no big deal. That's his team. He's been with that team for ten years, right? But if we show up yep. and week one we fall out, they're just like, send this guy home. You know, like bye. Yeah, bye. Can't make it up a caving ladder or something like that. <laughs> exactly. They're not going to feel sorry for you. They don't know you. You know, so if you're not bringing anything to the table, it's like goodbye. So yeah, I was actually thinking about this the other day. The the, the mindset that makes us different, right? And, and what I come down to is we have like a little joke called like, you know, like we say to each other, like we're good triers. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I know that, that goes around. It's like, hey, Sarge, I'm a good trier. Like I keep trying. But I'm like, that is that is kind of like the community. Like you are you've been through those experiences where you've fallen on your face over and over and over again. But you just keep trying like that is the training. That is the lifestyle is like, yeah. hey, we hit this bump in the road. Like this isn't failure. This is just a bump in the road. So what? So I'm, I'm, I'm beating up a little bit. It was a hard landing or whatever. What do we all do? You stand up and you keep going. I think that's really what sets you apart from all those other people. Like you had a rough night, you only slept two hours or whatever. What do you do the next day? You get up and you keep going because like you have a goal and something that you're passionate about and something that you want to accomplish. So I think that that's a huge thing. It's the guts to try. I actually meant to name, I was going to change the name of my speech that I did at the conference I did to the guts to try. Right. Um, and where I got that from, it's always stuck with me. It was actually at air traffic control school. And for people in here that don't know, Brent was actually one of my cadre at ATC school. Um, yeah, you know, he wasn't nice back then, but, uh, and then actually me and you were, on, we, we were, we were actually on, on red team together at the two, three for a bit and stuff like that. So it's, it's kind of funny, like how you, you're like, oh, this guy was my cadre. And then now like, oh, I'm on team with him. Like, oh, shit. you know, like, so <laughs> like, but I remember at air traffic control school, a controller wrote this. It was like in a picture plaque or something. And it was called the guts to try. And it was like an old, I don't know who wrote it. I, I, I bet they still have it somewhere, wherever they keep all the stuff now. I've at ATC. seen that too. Yeah. It, it was definitely like an older thing. And it was basically the way it said is it's not the fastest guy. It's not the strongest guy. It's the guy that just has the guts to show up and try, you know, even if he doesn't make it, it's just to show up. And, and I, 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 that just stuck with me throughout my everything, right? Because people are always like, how are you so good at business? How do you have all these successful businesses and, and this and this and this? Like, how are you like, how are you this genius, right? And I'm like, guys, I, I'm not. I just have the guts to try. Like, I'm not the best. I'm not the smartest guy. I just listen to people that are smarter than me and I apply myself and I just I try. And if I fail, hey, at least I tried. Right. But if you don't show up, you know, you, you can't win if you don't play. And yep. I, I talked about this the other day, but um, I remember day one selection, right? At, at Lackland, dudes quit before the cadre even showed up. Like, yep. we're all standing out there waiting for cadre to show up. Actually, it was Rob Parr. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he gets out of his truck, and dude's like, Who y'all saw tonight? Quit. He's just like, he's like, what? what? He's like, guys, we haven't even started yet. And I think two guys quit. He's like, I'm going to go inside and like make some coffee. I'll come back out. If you still want to quit. You can quit. But like, we haven't even started. And he just like walked in like, just like, huh? but like these guys were already quitting. They didn't, it's the guts to try, right? Like just have the guts to try and you'll excel. Like no one's perfect. No one's the strongest, the best, but you just got to try. I, I'm 
I'm stuck on who y'all started and I quit. Oh, yeah. I, I, I haven't mean, even, like. Dude, I remember wow. dudes literally running to the bathroom before the Padres showed up that morning, like, pretty much pooping on themselves. Like, they had to run to the bathroom because they were, like, that nervous. I mean, Trent knows it from ATC. Man, you walk up in that locker room, it smells. Everyone's just getting all the pre, pre-poops out before PT, you know, before you get smoked. So. Well, you got a pre-game. You have yeah. to pre-game. Yeah. But, like. That th- those are the people that take tomorrow's stress or or future stress and put it into today's moment or or the right now, right? Like mm-hmm. I think one of the skill sets you also pick up in the pipeline is just let it come to you. You know, like it's gonna suck, but if all you do is stress about how much tomorrow is gonna suck and the next day and the next day, and you just don't like live through it, mm-hmm. and you're never gonna you're never gonna start, right? Like they're gonna quit before they even start because they're anticipating it being way worse than it is. Like, and I think halfway through the pipeline, you you know it's gonna suck the next day. But like you're just like yeah, like let, let's see what fresh hell awaits us today, boys. You know, yeah. and you kind of get that attitude, and you just show up and do it. Exactly. That's how, that's how I applied business, right? People are always like, "Hey, what was like your business plan model? Did you have like a three year plan, a five year plan? Like, what what did you do?" And I'm like, really, I ha- I didn't have a plan that detailed. I had a general idea of where I wanted to go, but I had to take it day by day because every day something changes, right? Like, and a good example of that is like, let's say COVID right? COVID just threw a, a wrench in the whole plan. Like literally you get a notification, Hey, you can't even do short-term rentals no more. Like, well, that wasn't in a three-year plan, you know? Like, yeah. so like, you, <laughs> Oh no. Yeah. It, it's a day by day. So like, yes, I have a general idea of, of where I want to end up, but then I just have to take it day by day. I can't be thinking about tomorrow, 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 because you just got to deal with today and get through it to the next day. Well, that's the pipeline as a whole. Yeah. All right. On uh, on to the next four-hour pool session. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Um, I, I finished that. Now on to, you know, whatever. Okay, it's sleep now. Yeah. All right, cool. I'll, and then, all right, we'll wake up. And then on that one, it's just day by day. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Especially okay. when you look at a pipeline that you go, oh, oh, shit, it's going to take me freaking, you know, two years to get through. That that's daunting when you look at it like that. Oh yeah, and, and now man, just little bites at a time. That's all. That's where I saw a lot in like in the early stages of pipeline. Like I think it changed, but when I went through selection, it was two weeks at, at Lackland, right? So most guys were like, "Oh, I can suck it up for two weeks," and then they got to ATC school for four months, and they're like, "This sucks." They're like, "I got like three more months of this." You know, and then they start thinking long term, like, well, actually, I got more than four months. I got in a whole another year after this, right? And then they're just like, I'm, I'm done. And I kind of see the same thing. Like, in, like a lot of what I do now is like business consulting. Like, I look at other businesses, even the company that bought me out, and they have all these great five year plans. But I'm like, what about right now? What are you doing for the next today, the next five days, the next five months? And a lot of times people just, they want to see that they want the end goal right now, right? They want the rewards of that end goal without basically making a good plan on how you're even going to get to that end goal. Cause it sounds good to say, Hey, I want to grow my business to a hundred million dollars. Like, okay, that's a great end goal in five years, but like, how are you actually going to get there? How are you going to get to just 5 million this year? How are you going to get to 10 million next year? So you just got to take it little steps at a time. How are we going to survive until next year? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, how are you making payroll this month? You know, like, so, yeah, exactly. but a lot of times people just, they just want to jump to that, that, that victory right now. 
Well, yeah, because I mean, that's what's easy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but you're you're going to learn so much stuff along the way, right? Like, uh, like we look at this podcast. Like, we didn't know what we didn't know for so long. You know, like you're still growing and learning, right? Like, and when you start a business or do anything, like you're like, oh, I want to be at this place in five years. If you get like way too specific, like you're talking about, like there are so many steps along the way that could like change your trajectory and all these other things. That like, man, like just you're like you said, like worry about like the next few months because when you get there, you'll be like, holy crap, I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. like xyz like there's so much like i don't know about this business and all these other things and like these other opportunities that exist and so like if you if you pigeonhole yourself and you like make the you know your path like way too narrow and get obsessed about it like i think some people can do that but like i can't do that like i'm, I'm more like you like we have a general idea of where we want to go mm-hmm. and learn along the way and pick things up and motivation and, and other things that you want to do and like see what happens you know but like just keep trying though keep Keep hitting your head against that wall until it breaks, you know, see what happens. Exactly. You know, it's just like, like the guts try, right? But I, I love to reflect on like what I've done over like kind of like in periods of years. So like if I go back to like where I thought two years ago, like, oh, this is where, this is the direction I'm heading. My direction completely changed from just two years ago. Or even when I look back at like a year ago, I'm like, oh, I knew exactly what I was doing. I look back and I'm like, man, I was barely walking. You know, I thought I was sprinting. So, you know, like the, the plan changes all the time, like all the time. Um, so yeah. Well, let's talk about that then. Like, let's go back into some, your, your kind of background, like where you started when you joined the air force and that kind of stuff. Cause we did, we did kind of jump in just cause I felt like that was the, I was already thinking that in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, because we get that question all the time. Like, what can I do when yeah. I get out? We're like, look, look, look at this guy. Yeah. <laughs> you keep telling you can do anything. Look. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, let's, let's jump back to, uh, the kind of what made you, did you always want, know that you wanted to be CCT? Like, did you, did you actually, you know, did a recruiter when you came in actually know about it and then, then kind of walk through that real quick <sighs> or not yeah. real quick, but just walk yeah. through it. <laughs> no. So, um, I always knew from an early age, I wanted to go in the military, right? Like I knew specifically I wanted to go like in some type of special operations. Uh, my dad was actually air force. Um, like before I was born, he did, um, avionics actually on a 10s. Um, that's what he worked on. And, uh, he was actually at a, it was called England air force base in Louisiana. Uh, that's no longer there. They shut it down like in the nineties or something. But, um, so my dad was Air Force. My sister was actually in the Air Force. Um, she was three years older than me, so she had joined the Air Force. Um, I thought I actually didn't want to go in the Air Force. I wanted to go be a Navy SEAL. So played played too many war games in the woods of Texas as a kid, right? Read too many books, watched Tears of Was it Tears of the Sun? All that good, all that good stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> all the um, Charlie Sheen SEAL movies, all that good stuff, right? So I went to the, the Navy. Rock. Yeah, so. I went to the Navy recruiter and got, I got fed the most wrong information. He goes, I was like, I want to be a Navy SEAL. He goes, okay, you have to do four years of ship duty before you can be a SEAL. And I was like, what? He goes, well, he's like, we can't just trust you and put you in the SEALs. We don't know who you are. He goes, you have to do four years regular Navy. They have to do your top secret clearance for two years. And they basically do all these background checks and yada, yada, yada. And then after that first enlistment, then you can go be a SEAL. I was like, oh, that, that sounds kind of terrible. So I was like, you know what? Love like Green Berets. I remember watching John Wayne Green Beret go to the Army guy. I was like, hey, I want to be a Green Beret. 
special forces. He goes, we don't really have special forces anymore. And I was like, what about being a sniper? He goes, yeah, we don't really have snipers. Everything's infantry and ranger now. And he goes, we have like a $15,000 sign up for infantry. If you want to go be infantry, he's like, I was infantry, but he's like, yeah, we don't, we don't really have green berets that, that got over after Vietnam. And I was just kind of like, Oh, like this is like, Oh, four. Right. Like in my house, we had like dial up internet. So I wasn't really like Googling stuff. And he was just like, here's your infantry packet, sign up 15 K. Right. And I'm just like, huh. So the air force recruiter, I knew him because, you know, he put my sister in. He actually went to my church and he was um aircraft mechanic. That was his background. So I was talking with him. He's like, hey, you know, we got like special operations and stuff like that. And what he really knew about was was PJs. And he was like, look, PJs are like special force doctors. It's kind of how he described it to me. He's like, these guys are doing like field surgery. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I was like, you know what? I wouldn't mind becoming like a doctor one day. He's like, yeah, you know, go do this. You can go be like a PA when you're done or, you know, surgeon. I was like, yeah, it'd be kind of cool. Then he also told me about combat control. He goes, well, there's also combat control. And he shows me this photo of this guy holding like a satellite antenna and like talking on a radio. And I was like, oh, what's that? He goes, I don't know much about them. He goes, I just know they jump into like places like Iraq and they go into the air traffic control tower and they control air traffic. And I was like, oh, I was like, well, that doesn't sound like super exciting. He's like, yeah, they're air traffic controllers. And I was just like, nothing about dropping bombs, no JTAC, none of this stuff, right? He's just like, you you, you parachute in and then you land aircraft. And I was just like, oh, the the special force doctor sounds way cooler, right? (laughs) And then... uh, And then, um, God, I wish, I wish Aaron was here. Aaron's head would just be like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. These are the best. Yeah. So no pamphlet, nothing about TACP. He told me about Sear. He was like, oh, these guys are like survival experts. I'm like, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. So one of my friends was like, hey, ask him about TACP. These guys drop bombs and they're, they're Air Force, but they're not. They're with the Army. He's like, you wear Army uniforms, but, you still get like Air Force like benefits. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. So I asked my recruiter about TACP. And he goes, honestly, I don't really know anything about them. He goes, because they live with the Army. And he was like, that's basically all I know. He goes, they're they're the Army guy. They they talk to, they do like some airstrikes. That's, that's all I know. He goes, I don't have any information. He goes, why don't you ask him when you go to the, the, the MET program down in Houston? So I was like, okay. So I go to MEPS. Um, thinking I want to be a PJ. Failed depth perception and my uncorrected eyesight isn't good enough. I had 2270 eyesight, uncorrected. And they're like, you're disqualified. And I was like, well, what about TACP? And they were like, disqualified, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. So I go back to my recruiter and he was like, it doesn't matter about your eyesight once you're in the Air Force. He goes, let's sign you up for security forces. We'll put you, we'll get you in boot camp. And then your second week in boot camp, you can try out for CCT. And I was like, or uh, sorry, PJ, PJ. And I was like, hey, that sounds great. Sign me up, Sarge. So, oh my gosh. So I leave for boot camp. Two months out of high school, bam, I'm gone. I'm in boot camp. Um, I remember like they did like the tryouts for like PJ or CCT. The guy come and talk to us. Seer guy came and talked to us. Tap Pete guy came and talked to us. And I knew I couldn't. So I, I'm like, hey, like I, w- I want to do this, and 
I'm disqualified because of my eyesight and depth perception. Like, oh, you can't, you can't do CCT, you can't do PJ, and you can't do SEER because you have to pass like the flight physical. And I'm like, oh, so the TAP P, they're like, oh, you can do the medical people, like, you can do TAP P. So the TAP P recruiter's there. He goes, what's your job? I said, security forces. He goes, I can't, I can't touch you. And he goes, I can't bring you because this was in 2006 and they had like a shortage of security forces. He goes, you're like the only career field like I can't pull from. And he's like, sorry. He's like, come retrain. I was a six year enlistee. He's like, come, come like retrain like three years. And I was just like, oh, so the next week, Air Force Honor Guard team comes down, the drill team. And they're spinning their rifles in the air, doing all their stuff. And they said, if you're five foot 10 above, come talk to us. So I go, I go to this guy and I was like, Hey, you know, six feet tall. And he goes, can you bench press 225 three times? And I was like, yeah, I can do that. He goes, you're going to be a pallbearer. And I was like, okay. And, uh, I was like, I'm, I'm in security forces right now. And he goes, no problem. I'll pull you out. And so I switched to, to honor guard and I went and did, did honor guard up in DC and basically carried caskets all day, did like arrival ceremonies. Um, but it was cool. Like I got to meet the queen of England when I was 18 years old, when she came, um, we would do like a rival ser- We would do like foreign dignitary arrivals at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Like we, we don't guard the tomb that's army only, but we would do like the wreath lane, the arrival ceremonies on the steps. So got to do a lot of cool stuff like that. And, um, it was very, it put a lot of discipline in me real quick. Like the honor guard was super, when I say strict, I mean, strict, strict. And actually you guys know my honor guard instructor was Neil Eisner. So if you guys know, no Eisner, freaking he, way. I was his very last class. Um, he had actually I love, just, I love that dude. Yeah. So he had like completed, he had like just completed ATC school. And he ran us like we were basically pipeline. Like, but I loved him. I was like, this, I love this guy. Right. And then, so I was his last class. And then I remember he, like, he came back later with his beret. I was like, this guy's like a superhero. This is like Jesus Christ. Right. <laughs> so he was a big inspiration for me because then he was actually the one telling me about CCT, like what they actually did, like not just air traffic controllers. So he was like a really, really big mentor to me. Um, and kind of making up my my decision making and going combat control. And then actually I was just out with him last night, but Jeremy Schlawbaugh and Bobby Bonello. Um, me and Bobby Bonello, we were like really good friends there. And then they had left um together and went into the pipeline, both came back, became controllers. So I, that's where that's where I was like, okay, like I'm gonna go be a combat controller once I can I can retrain. So that was um that was the intro, or I guess that was like my recruiter into the Air Force story, and that's how it. Neil's not started. a bad dude to have as a uh, bringing you in. Yeah, he was a good guy, right? Because like you know, like Neil doesn't like like doesn't have bad lifestyle, right? Like he's not going to the bar and drinking, and you know, no. he's, he was a good Christian man. No, he's a family man, very family man, very good Christian. So like when you're 18 years old. And, you know, you're just full of testosterone. You need someone like him to be like, hey, man, like, don't go out there and just party your life off and go crazy with alcohol and stuff like that. So he was like a really, really big mentor to me when I was a young guy. Yeah. Like I yeah. said, he's, he's a great dude to have as a, as a mentor. Mm-hmm. 
So, so you saw him, he, he mentored you and then you kind of changed your mind and said, Hey, I'm going to go CT now that you knew a little bit more about it. Yeah. So that was the plan. Um, so I wanted to prepare for it. So I'm at Bowling Air Force Base, you know, um, with the honor guard. And I'm like, I'm going to go get LASIK. Like I had to get my eyesight corrected because at this time I, I couldn't even get a waiver with my uncorrected eyesight. And I'm just hitting roadblocks after roadblocks. They're like, oh, you're too young for LASIK. You have to be over the age. I think it was 21. Uh, They're like, because your eyes are still like not fully developed. So I was just like, ah, you know. And then um, at about a year, year and a half, I actually got retrained over to services um, over at Andrews Air Force Base. So I get pulled out of the honor guard and go to services. So the services there actually, they were switching it to all civilian and they PCS a lot of the military out. And I got augmented to go over there to replace because they, they couldn't PCS in military, but they, they moved their military out. So yeah, I know. Right. It's military, right? Oh man. Brilliant. Yeah. But I never went to services tech school. So I didn't go to the tech school and I get there and I'm basically not qualified to do anything. And they're like, we don't even really know what to do with you. So I worked at the fitness center, right? I'd either work at the fitness center or I'd work at lodging. And the fitness was great because like all I did was just work out the whole time. We had no towels. We didn't, we didn't do anything. Like we were just there at the front desk, right? So I just worked out all the time. Um, it was really good. And then um, because they didn't really know what to do with me, they <laughs> – I remember the great master sergeant, this guy. He comes up to me. He's like, hey, Howard. He was like, you're a country boy from Texas, right? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you hunt animals? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you clean them, get blood and guts and all that. I was like, yeah. He goes, it doesn't bother you. I'm like, no. He goes, okay, we're going to deploy you. So you know, here I'm 19. I'm like, yes, I'm going. I'm going to Iraq. I'm going to go kill bad going guys. Going to the show. Like, going to war. Blood and guts, right? Like I'm just like I'm going. Um, and I'm like I'm like I'm pumped. I'm like where like where am I going? He's like you're going to Dover. I was like, where's that? I'm like is that like Afghanistan? And uh, he's like, no, Dover, Delaware. And I was like. That's like an hour and a half down the road. And he's like, yeah, you're going to the mortuary. And I was like, the mortuary? And he's like, yeah. He's like, a lot of people can't do the job there. And he goes, they need people over there to go to go do it. So I'm like, okay. So, you know, this is like my probably like two-year mark. So I'm still not eligible to retrain because I was a six-year enlistee. Um, so I go to the mortuary and knock, literally like knock on the door. Um, you know, here I am, A1C, A1C Howard, right? All by himself, no one else, like all by myself, knocking the door, and they're just like, "Who are you?" I'm like, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm from like Bowling Air Force Base. I'm here to like work at the mortuary." And they're like, "Oh, they're like, we actually weren't expecting you for like another two weeks when the other deployers get here." And I was like, "Okay." So they bring me in, and they're just like, "How do you feel about working with dead bodies?" And I was like, "I don't know. I never, I like, never seen a dead body." And this is literally my intro. <laughs> and they're just like, okay, we're going to take you in the back. And they walk me in the back and they're processing all the bodies. And they always process at like basically like 7 a.m., right? From the, the bodies from the night before. And there's just like dead bodies literally on these gurneys. Like they're processing, they're fingerprinting, you know, they're pulling out ice bags. And I'm back there and I'm like, and I actually asked the guy, I'm like, is that. Is that a real body or is that special effects? He's like, no, that that's a real, like, that's a dead person. And I was like, 
oh, this is, this is real. Like this, like shit just got real. And I was like, I was kind of like in shock by it. And I'm just kind of like observing like what's happening. And as you guys know, like most of these, most of the dead are from IEDs. So these bodies are just mutilated. Like, I mean, some of them you can't even like, you can't even tell if it's a male or a female. And I'm just sitting there like 19 years old and they're like, hey, they're like put on the PPE and they're like, why don't you help with like the fingerprinting? And I'm like, and like right into it. And they're like, hey, just hold this arm. We're going to do the fingerprint, stuff like that. And I'm just like, what the fuck? You know, like I was just like, I was just so shocked by it. And I just, I went, I went um, through that. Right. So um, long story short, when the deployers get there, that's actually how I meet my wife. My wife comes with that team. They're from Record Air Force Base. So I meet her there. And um, first month or so, nothing. But then we started like kind of dating. And then we actually wound up getting married at this point. Um, so I, oh, well, I can go more in details on that. But yeah, so met at the mortuary, right? <laughs> That's what people usually ask like our story. They're like, usually we're at dinner with people and they're like, Hey, how'd you guys meet? And usually we're like, Oh, we just met in the military. We don't usually tell them like, you know, mortuary, but the way I actually met her was she worked an autopsy and I was, I was in this thing called all around crew and all around crew did everything. Um, and because I was honor guard, I would do the um, arrival ceremonies with the, with the transfer cases the night before. So I would do the arrival ceremonies and I would lead that uh, because of my cast carrying uh, experience, right? So I would do that. And the next morning, I would come in with the all-around crew. And um, I'd basically pull the bodies, uh, pull the body bags out of the case, stick them up on the x-ray EOD scanner. And then I would pull out the ice bags. We'd vacuum out the blood and water. And then it would kind of go through processing, um, like fingerprinting, all that stuff, right? So my next kind of phase is what they called viscera dissection and autopsy would hand me a bucket of guts. So my wife would literally hand me a bucket of guts and I would take that bucket of guts and then I would, I would basically clean the guts. I'd be washing it and then we chop in little pieces and preservative powder. And then I bring it back to autopsy and they put it back in the body and sew it up. So that's like how we actually met. And I know it's kind of a crazy story, but this is the kind of stuff that really like set me up for success in into going into combat control, right? Because I was kind of this immature kid, like want to be kind of like a you know party kid, want to go chase girls and, and be stupid. And I had to mature really quick with doing this because now, I mean, I'm I'm really processing soldiers that are my age, younger, and I'm seeing the real effects of war. And I'm like, even me, I was like, man, like, is this really what I want to, like, I think I want to be like a combat control. I think I want to be a gangster. And now I'm seeing what being a gangster is, right? Like I'm, I'm seeing these like dead bodies and I was just kind of like, wow, this is, this is kind of, you know, this, this is really intense when you're, when you're working that on a daily operation. Cause I, I would do that and I go back to my hotel room. Like, and I'm like, man, this is, this is weird, you know? So like that was, that was the start of that, but. I remember I had this really good mentor. His name was Adam Hernandez. He was a still friends with him day on Facebook. He's a he was a master sergeant at the time. And there's a bunch of young airmen there. 
And they were, you know, kind of doing what airmen do, complain, right? And he brings him over to this casket. This guy was a full, had a full service dress getting ready to push out. He goes, if this guy can't, can't complain, you can't complain. And I was just like, Whew. you know, like that's, that's deep. So things like that stuck with me all the time. So like whenever I was feeling sorry for myself in the pipeline, I would remember things like that, right? I'm like, man, if that guy can't complain, I can't complain. Like the fact that I can even complain, it's because I'm alive, right? So things like that would just stick with me going. And when, when you're young, you're, you could be molded really easy, right? So like I'm a mushy brain, 19 years old. And I'm listening to a guy I respect, hear things like that. It, it, it imprints, it imprints on you, you know, when you're young. So yeah, I did that. Um, then me and the wife got married. Actually, um, you guys know Corey Haggett, PJ. I know the name. Yeah, I know the name. No. So I think I know him though. He's still in. Uh, he's he's like a team sergeant now or whatever. He's getting close. I think he's probably getting close to retirement. He went up to the for a bit. Real, real super experienced PJ. He was at two three when I. He was actually at the two three when I got there. His mom was my chief in DC. <laughs> Dang. Right. So his um, I forgot her husband's name, um, but I think he, he was a PJ at one point or whatever. So she was a good mentor to me, right? Like she she was a thirty year chief, and I had basically told her. This is like after I got married to my wife. I'm still in D.C. getting ready to move to Washington State and join my wife. And I'm like, look, I want to become a combat controller. So she actually put me in contact um, with her husband who was at the Pentagon. And he put me in contact with a guy. Um, you might know him, Peaches. His name was Donald Cantwell. He was Chief Master Cantwell. And Cantwell. He was, a, he was an older guy. This is like in 08. And I think he was probably... He was already a chief at the Pentagon, and he actually gave me my pass test at the Pentagon uh, for combat control. Yeah, went up there and, and did it. He was—he definitely mentored me. He was really good. Um, so I did my pass test. I'm getting ready because my three-year mark was was coming up, basically to retrain. And then I PCS to Washington State to be with the wife. At the day I get there, they're like, "We're going back to the mortuary. Do you want to go again?" Cause your wife's going. And I was like, well, yeah, I didn't PCS here just to like have her go right back. So like literally like I drove from DC to Washington state, literally the day I'm driving to Washington state, they're like, okay. I, I knew who her master sergeant was cause he was at the mortuary with me. So he was like, I know you have any in process yet, but he was like, I'm just going to put you down for it. So left immediately again for the mortuary again, actually had to push back my retrain, my, my, my start class start date for CCT because of that. So I went right out of the mortuary, right into selection. So I literally mortuary went home for like one week, bam, I'm at Lackland and went right into selection. So, yeah, but that was, it was really good motivation again. Right. So like I'm back at the mortuary again and it was tough. Cause I was even kind of like, man, like, I don't know if I really want to go back there. Cause like it, it wasn't, you know, very tough experience because I'd be processing generally about four to seven bodies a day. So it's very mentally, you know, draining, but, you know, jobs got to get done. Yeah. It's kind of around that time frame. Yeah. yeah. I, I had no idea you'd gone through all that before you, you ended up in the pipeline. And it's, it's funny, like I love listening to people because you, you put all the positive spins on it. And I'm like, there's like eight different times in there where like other people quit. 
along that path to become a combat controller. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's why like, I basically I had no quit attitude. Like I actually, it, I didn't really tell a lot of people what I did in, in the mortuary. Um, you know, like I wasn't like, Oh, you know, mortuary affairs. Cause I didn't really like know how to explain that. But I remember actually at selection, it was Rob Parr. Like I'm, I'm very close to Rob. Like we're good friends now. Right. But this is like when I'm, you know, I'm a senior airman at the time. I think Rob, I think Rob was a staff sergeant, maybe a tech. And obviously we're not friends. Like he's my cadre, right? Like this guy's just pushing my stuff in every day. And he like walks up to me. He's like senior airman Howard, you know? And he was like, what'd you, what do you do in the, what do you do like in the air force or something like that? And I'm like, I think I'm face down in the dirt or something like that. Right. And I was like, I said, I'm, I'm services. He goes, services? He goes, uh, he goes, have you ever been to the mortuary? And I don't know how he knew. I never, I never asked him the story. I, I should ask. I'm, I think I'm going to text him after this and ask him. But he goes, have you ever been to the mortuary? And I said, I just came back from there like last week. He goes, okay. And he just went, he just walked away and then just started like tearing apart some other guy. And he just started, he never he never once again messed with me after that. Like never, never smoked me. He just start. he would just smoke everybody else but me. And I was just like, Oh, okay. You know? So I'm sure there's a story behind that. How, how he knew maybe he had been there, you know, a friend or something like that. But I was just kind of like, Oh wow. Like, yeah, I need to, I need to ask him that story now that I say it out loud. Yeah. Rob, you got soft. You got soft, yeah. Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny. Actually, I sold his house a couple years ago too. It's funny how that works out. Like launch, like I was actually on team with him. Like I, when I got to team at two, three, I was on team with him and stuff like that. And it's, it's funny how you run just, you know, a small world, right? Like you never think when you're going to When did you leave the two, three? 2018. Well, actually I should say it was end of 17. I went on terminal leave in November 17. Okay. Yeah. Cause I had, I had arrived in 2016, spring of 2016. I was up in ops with you for a little bit. I don't know if you remember yeah. that. Yeah. You were up in ops. Yeah. I was up there for a little bit. Yeah. I was up uh, in the WebTAC mm-hmm. area. We yep. that, yeah. That's how I got to meet you. And that's actually our, you know, the funny thing was, um, oh, I should, I should say this before how I went, how I went from combat control without having LASIK and all that. Right. Yeah. I see your photo in the Air Force Times. And it it's that famous. It's like that picture of you. I think you're carrying a ruck or you're dragging a ruck yeah, or something like that. Iraq. Yeah. So I see this. This is actually I am at I, um as I'm at the mortuary the first time, the first time, right? As I'm there, I see in the Air Force Times. It's about the shortage of combat controllers, and it has that picture of you was carrying. That, was that, that a ruck. pun? Yeah, I was thinking short. <laughs> Oh no! Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I mean like, no, I didn't mean that. But they, <laughs> no, no, I you're think, good. You're good. No. I, th- I think no, it, says, it was perfect, though. I think it said there was short like a, <laughs> I think it said there was only like a hundred and eighty combat controllers or something like that, or two hundred. It was a very small amount, like like total force, like active guard, everything, and they got rid of the eyesight requirements because of it. They were giving waivers. So that's actually how I, how I did it. So I got to go do my flight physical and then it was just once, if I became a combat controller, I had to get like LASIK done at some point in time. 
so that's how I was able to do it without getting LASIK and, and, and that, and that's how I took my flight physical, got set up for retraining and that's how I got into it. Well, when you came in, there was like the surge of, of combat control trainees. Like they opened up the floodgates. Cause I remember at Keesler, like, and I was talking about this with one of my buddies the other day, former, former student, now buddy. Right. Um, like we had three teams on deck at all times. And these teams started yeah. out with like 20 to 30 folks. You know, we'd, we'd whittle them down in the first couple of weeks oh, yeah. um, because, you know, selection was too soft. So we had to reselect yeah. everybody. It Keesler. was the real selection. That's what they call it. The real selection was ATC. Yeah. But we had, there was a lot of, lot of people coming through. So it was, it was pretty chaotic. I went through with a really big class. So more than normal, it was like one of the biggest classes that actually didn't get dwindled down, but it's because not because it got easy. There was a bunch of studs in it. So the guys I went through, like dudes like Chris Lewis, Sam Reed, I'm trying to think some other dudes like this, right? So they all went through PJ pipeline. And then halfway through, they were like, we don't want to become PJs at selection. They're like, we want to go combat controllers. So the deal they were given, um, I forgot what still it was down there that did it. But he basically said, if you guys want to cross over to CCT, you have to make it to like some phase of PJ NDOT, like halfway through five weeks or six weeks. And if you do that, I'll let you cross the CCT. So the fact that these guys made it through like five or six weeks of like PJ then they came over to see, like, these dudes were studs, right? So I started off with, like, a class of, I think, like, 40-something people at selection or whatever. And we didn't really lose as many as normal. Like, most of these classes just got wrecked. But I think we actually probably graduated, like, 20-something dudes, which was kind of, like, unheard of. And then when we went to ATC, you're right. There was, like, I remember, like, three other classes that had a mean. These classes were, like, probably 20, 30-sized people. And then Ryan McQuillan was actually my instructor. Um, and I remember him and Molson and Sperlin. I was like his last class, Ashley Sperlin. That guy was a yeah. monster. I was like, I was so terrified of him. He just, he just looked mean, you know? And uh, He's such a nice guy. <laughs> I actually became friends with him on Facebook after later on. And I was like, this guy's really, like, I like this guy. This guy's really cool. But, you know, at the time, you're, you're terrified of him. But uh, yes, I went through with a bunch of studs, which for me, it made it really hard because these dudes were in such good shape from just going through like six weeks of PJ already. Like they were just, you know, fast runners and swimmers. And yeah, I was, I was struggling a little bit starting off with them. (laughs) Dude, it it is funny though. When you hear the names and you're like, the the people are terrifying. Like at the time, you know? They're, they're, they're mentors at the same time. They're, you know why they exist. You hear rumors of the things that they've done in the past. You're like, dude, I don't, I don't rate being in the same room as this person kind of thing. Mm. And then, then you get through it all and then you, you learn about the real person and you're like, oh, yeah. well, boy, that was like, a, <laughs> some misguided stuff, but oh, yeah. no, that's the way it's meant to be. I, one of my biggest mentors I, I had in, in, in comic control was, was Rob Bartleson. And, uh, I was terrified of Rob Bartleson. Like, so he's quick an intimidating story. looking dude though. Oh, like even now. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? I'm yeah, still I, scared I, of Rob. I, yeah. I'm still scared. Of, I'm still scared of RB, right? <laughs> like my, I'll just tell you a story real quick. I hope I'm not getting off topic or taking up too much time here, but. No, no, no. You're good. We'll, we'll, we'll do this. And then we're going to hit the, the first day of foundation. Okay. We definitely okay. Cool. want to highlight that. So 
my very first day at STTS, like just an in-process day. It's just in-processing. <laughs> it's like 4.30. I'm literally like, I just set up my wall, my wall locker. I'm literally getting ready to leave to go home. And they say, everyone, it just, it's like the, the alarm went off at STTS. Everyone's just running in the locker room. It's going crazy. And they say, go grab every piece of equipment outside and run to the beach. Every kettlebell, every weight plate, every barbell, every motor, every, everything, every boat oar, right? Everything from the back of STTS gets brought down to the beach. And I'm just like, what is going on? Like me and my team have no idea. Like my team leader, no one knows what's going on. Like we were literally on our way home. And out comes Rob Bartleson on the beach. And it was like a wall of instructors. And he just steps through. Like he just spreads them, right? <clears throat> and he just, he walks out. And still gives me goosebumps, right? He goes, the commander wants me to get your attention. And I'm going to get it for him. He goes, today's ORM, pain. And he just turns around and walks away. And the instructors just start rip. I mean, just smoke session like I had never seen in my life. It went from 4.30 to about 3.30 in the morning, right? So I tell you, it was so bad. Three dudes actually got medically retired from it. Three studs actually got medically retired because like they messed up their shoulders and backs like that bad, right? Probably not the right thing that happened, but you know. No, I was going to say, that's you know, right. This is a bad smoke session. So the funny thing, I'll, I'll say this, because I, I tell a story and we're all friends now today, which is hilarious, but it was a um, Keaton theme. Um, so we got smoked for something that happened with him. I'll get, I'll, I'm going to tie this in at the end, why, why I bring this up, but I didn't even know who he was, right? But the whole smoke session was because of that. And um, Rob doesn't say anything else. It's just the instructor's tearing apart. We have every kettlebell in the, in the boat. We're doing like push-ups with it, like pushing the air. And then like if some people couldn't get the boat up, they would swap people around, you know, because like we just like I can't tell you how many times we push this boat up in the air with like three boat motors in it and every kettlebell from the gym. So that crosswalk from the sound side to Herbert Field over 98, he made us carry a daisy chain. Only one piece could start and finish, and then the next piece could go. So literally across this crosswalk, one whole boat going all the way across it to the other side. And then if, if we started another piece um, before that piece got to the end, that piece had to go back. That's why this smoke <laughs> session took so long. One fuel bladder, one two and a half pound plate, one five pound plate, one barbell at a time. This took all night, right? So by the time we finally make it back to STTS, Rob Bartleson comes out. He goes, um, you will become as hard as woodpecker lips or you will not survive here. He goes, you're not in AETC no more. This is AFSOC. I can do whatever I want to do to you. And he walks off. Yes. And I looked at my buddy, Grady Clark. And I said, Grady, I said, I don't think this guy's fucking around. He goes, this guy is not fucking around. <laughs> and then we had to be back there at like six in the morning. I mean, I got home. My wife was like, where have you been? What happened? I'm like, Dave, I don't even really know what happened, but I was like, I was getting smoked. I, I, I can't, I got to go to sleep. I got to wake up in like three hours, <laughs> you know? So 
I tell that story about like Keaton and Rob because it's funny because they're all at the farmers market, you know. So like Keaton had like a juice company over here in Destin, and I brought that story about the smoke session, and Rob totally forgot about it. And Rob was like, "I can't believe this." He's like, "We're all here together now," and like you know, Rob's <laughs> selling his meat and eggs, and Keaton's selling his juice, and they're just like best friends. So I, it's just like it's funny how that works out, right? Like it's just how that comes like full circle. But yeah, that's why I brought that up. But yeah, I was, I was, ter- so I was terrified of Rob, but, um, he mentored. So, okay. I go to, I go to free fall school, army free fall school, and I, I'm excelling at everything at STTS one done. Right. Um, I go to free fall school and they send me back from army day one because I, I didn't have a swick waiver for my, for my eyesight. So my eyesight becomes an issue again. So um, they got rid of all the Navy free, free fall school spots for, for CCT. And they're like, well, we can't get you a waiver. So you have to get LASIK. And I'm like, uh, so long story short, I get delayed at STTS about six months because of this. So I'm getting prepped for LASIK. I'm going for like all the medical appointments and everything. And um, oh wait, take a step back. Yeah, I already had my dive bubble. I already had my dive bubble. So I was there. So because I had my dive bubble, RB was significantly nicer to me, right? And I did a really good job there. And the cadre, I forgot his name. He was a chat dude at dive school. Um. Him and RB were really close, and he told him that I was I did really good. So RB was like, "You're good," but he didn't want to put me in medical hold at STTS or whatever it was called, some kind of you know, I don't know, whatever they were going to do with me. He goes, "I'm going to make you in charge of Phase One of all the like little classes in Phase One, and you're going to report to me, and you're going to control all." Of them. So as I'm like getting ready for LASIK. So this is how Rob becomes a big mentor to me. So I'm now in charge of, I think it was 64 guys. I'm a, I'm a young staff sergeant. I'm in charge of every phase one guy. And you talk about responsibility and fear every day, like being in charge of all these knuckleheads, you know, because it was like basically like three classes I was in charge of. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I ran a tight ship, like tight ship, not because... Because I had a fear. That's why I ran. You had tight. Yeah, I was, I was afraid. And like, there'd be times where like RB would make jokes to me and I would just be stone faced. Cause I didn't know if I should laugh at it or not. And then he'd be like, <laughs> he would be like, you can laugh Sergeant Howard. And I'd be like, huh? Eh. Like, I, cause I was just so, I was so terrified of him, but I respected him so much. I wanted to be him, you know, but he became such a big mentor and he would, he would teach me a lot. He would do things like he'd be really mad, like, hey, like one of the instructors would go up to him and be like, this class messed up. And he would be like, he'd bring me in. He'd be like, what happened? Like, you told me you were going to handle this. And I'd be like, please let me explain what happened. And then he'd be like, he's like, this is why we talk. I don't just jump to a conclusion. And he would like hear me out. And if I was actually right, I was right, you know, but he taught me a lot like, like patience, which is not something that was really happening. And when you're a student, you don't get patience or grace, no. but he was teaching me a lot of like leadership that was, that really helped develop me as, a, cause I was, a, I was a brand new staff sergeant, 
So he was really helping me develop, especially developing like my critical thinking skills and just, you know, thinking a lot because you're always put in situations at STTS where you're just like, you have to think. Um, but he was big on, cause he was a prior ranger. He was like, I'm going to teach you like ranger style leadership. And, and he did that. And it was, it was huge for me. And then, um, that really helped me throughout my, my pipeline at STTS. Cause like when you have a strong mentor, like RB, and then he goes to someone like, let's say like land of Ozzo in the next phase. And he's like, Howard's yeah, good. Though. you know, it just like, you, you just get set up. Like you don't come in there like, oh, this guy's a piece of crap, right? So he he would I, I would see it like he would go to that he always did it, man. Like I'd I'd walk into like because I was a team sergeant like for the class, and whenever I would go to the next phase, he would always be in there. He'd be like, yeah, that's the Howard I was telling you about, and he would kind of like grin, and like I knew what he was doing, but like they'd be like, oh yeah, don't worry, we'll take care of him. You know, we'll fix his attitude problem. I'm just like. You know, like it was always like that, but like he, I could tell he cared. And it was the same thing. Like when he became the op suit at the two, three, like he would still mentor me. He pulled me in his office and he'd be like, get in here. And I'd be like, Oh my God. Like I was still like, you know, terrified of him. And like, he would just mentor me. So he was even today, like, yeah, I still sorry, consider him man. a great mentor. Yeah. Like I still chat with him. I was up, I was actually at his farm probably a month and a half ago, chasing pigs with him. So like, he's just like, yeah, he's still scary. <laughs> well, like you obviously it, CCT plus, you know, the mortuary affairs, the honor guard were definitely formative for you. And I think it, at least from, from my point of view, I'm, I'm sure you'd probably agree. Um, created a, a mentality of service, uh, oh, yeah. you know, kind of ingrained in you, especially when you got, you know, guys like Lando RB, um, Neil Eisner, you know, guys that are, that, that helped, mold you uh, into what you are today and that that service doesn't really it never really stopped because even you know as you were are no longer a cct you are still giving back with the first there foundation mm. um so like please like you guys are doing some great things and that was one of the things like it's you hear about foundations that are doing great things but it, it's tough to highlight it as much. And like, it's a lot of the untold kind of things that, that are being done. So like, can you jump into the, what the first there foundation is and kind of what you guys are trying to get after? Cause it's not, I would argue that it's not the kind of normal things that foundations are trying to get after. Yeah. So first there foundation, um, it goes back to more mentors, right? So the, the founder of first there, Eric Homan, um, he was a senior guy when I first arrived to silver team at the two, three, and he was one of the, so, you know, I show up here. I am again, you're always a new guy, right? So as a controller, show up in the team room, brand new. And, um, he was one of the few guys that wasn't just like, I'm going to push your stuff in every day. Right. So he was like, very like, I'm going to, I'm going to train you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you the right things. I'm going to, you know, basically mentor you. So he was a, he was really good to me. And, um, and, and I'm so glad he was because I actually got more out of it than him just like drop, drop, take the trash out, stuff like that. Cause he was teaching me, you know, JTAC stuff, ATC stuff, very good to me. And, uh, then he left, he got out, he got out of the two, three, and uh, we always stayed in contact with each other when he was doing his, you know, as he was going along his civilian career. And then I think it was probably 
about two years ago, he uh, he hit me up and he was like, "Hey man, uh, it was after Chris Rush." Uh, after that happened and he goes and Chris Rush was actually my um, JTAC instructor at Stotac so I, mm-hmm. I I knew him from that and I really liked him and um, I knew about him a lot through uh, Homan and Adam Cooper who were on team with him so Eric was like hey man I think I want to start a foundation um, kind of like a like kind of our generation foundation for combat control and I really want to put like an emphasis on getting guys mental health because like with Chris, a lot of people didn't see it coming, right? And you know he was he was right here, so he was like, I want to do something. He's like, I just I got like a lot of emotion. I, I want to do something positive with it. I want to do something. He's like, you know, do you want to be a part of it with me? And he's like, I think you got a lot of you know connections that can basically that can help with this, especially like financially get things going. So I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, brother, I'm I'm in. You know, like I'm I'm all about taking care of the boys. Um, that's a big part of what I do with like my business wise with real estate, making, you know, trying to make guys as financially independent as I can. Right. So I was like, I'm all about helping these guys get mental health because I've had my own mental health issues and I know what's, what's helped me with that. And, you know, and it's an unfortunate part of being an operator, but everyone's going to have some kind of mental health issue. Right. And not just, not just from war. Or whatever, but it could just be home life, right? Marriages, something, right? Like everyone's going to have some kind of mental health issue, even if you've never been in the military. You're going to have some kind of breaking point on on something, some kind of strategy. So, first there was was started for for helping guys with mental health. Um, like you know, we have good we have good VA programs and stuff like that, but it can be sometimes a little hard, or maybe it's not the right program. Whereas with the First There Foundation. We could just have the funds to say, hey, if you need to go to this retreat, this camp or something like that, we're just going to send you to it. There's no red tape. You reach out, we'll pay that bill. You know, it's $10,000 for you to go on this retreat with a mental health professional. We're going to do it, right? And, and it was also about connecting the brotherhood more, like being more proactive to even avoid these mental health situations. So getting us together more, doing events like what we're doing next month in San Antonio for the, for the gala again. And, and a big thing is, is bringing awareness to it. And I think it really helped that, you know, like Eric was part of like, you know, the, the, the Jag nation, right. The Jaguar generation. So like, it, it really helps with that. Right. With like guys that are in that kind of like, you know, same category in in our generation. So it was, it was big. Um, I, I love working with it and it, it's nice when you see people want to help with it. Right. So Last year was the first time we did it, and I've never been—I've never been the guy to go ask for money or do things like that, right? And I remember reaching out to everyone I know in the real estate industry, very successful business people that I know out here in the area, and such a good feeling to see these people open up their their books, like their their checkbooks, right, their wallets. And I, I was I was very shocked. Um, I would just be texting people I know. Even just like clients I knew that had like a lot of money, I'd be like, hey man, this is our foundation. You know, we're trying to prevent like suicide prevention. We're trying to do mental health. And they'd be like, how much do you need? And I'm like, man, you can get whatever, you know, at least give me 20 bucks. And I would see thousand bucks come through, 1500 bucks come through, 500 bucks come through. And I was just like, like it, it made me kind of emotional because I'm just like, man, like people actually care. Like, you know, like a lot of these people are people that have never been in the military. 
but they really like, you know, sympathize with us and they love what we did for them and, you know, protecting freedom. So I think just like with, I posted it, I forgot how much exactly what it was, but just like in the real estate industry in the Destin area in Naples, I think I got about $47,000 in about a week out of, out of people. And I was just like, I was like, man, like I just couldn't thank them enough for, you know, for doing that. And then I think for the first year of gala, I think we raised a little, a little over $200,000 total um, for the whole foundation. And so Dude, things awesome. that we've been doing, yeah. And things we've been doing with that money. And, and the big thing I was about, I, I, I said, if we're going to do this, I don't want this to be some kind of like slush fund, right? Like I don't want the board members like, oh, I'm taking a private jet to go to a fundraising event. Because like, <laughs> I bring this up because like when I, when I went to law school, we, we actually uh, reviewed a case where like these big nonprofits were getting like half million dollar salaries, right? And then they would literally rent a $60,000 private jet to go to a fundraiser and only raise $20,000. So I was like, man, if we're going to do this, like, all the money's going back to the boys and the families. That's another big part I forgot to mention on the first there. It's not just for the controllers. It's also for their families. So like gold star moms, gold star wives, you know, um, sisters, stuff like that. And the, a lot of them have gone to these retreats. And I think, I don't want to say sometimes they get forgot about, but like, I don't think it's mentioned as much about, man, how do you think their mental health is? They just lost their baby boy, yeah. right? So they've been going to these, um, you know, mental health retreats and we've gotten like such positive feedback and reviews from it that, you know, it makes us keep doing what we're doing and bringing awareness and, you know, raising more money so we can get more of that out there. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what the first there foundation is about. I, I would say best thing, best way to describe it is, uh, like loss of life prevention. Like we're trying to prevent dudes from, you know, getting to that extreme of a point where they're like, I, I got to take my own life. Um, yeah, I, I hate it when we, it, it sucks when we lose a brother on the battlefield, right? It sucked. But when we lose a brother on home, that, that it, it hurts me way more where I'm like, man, like how did, how did I not see that sign? You know, I wish that guy would have reached out to me or something. I, I wish I could have saw the signs of him struggling or, or knew about it. And, and, and it just, it, it hurts a lot more. Like when it comes to war, you can like, okay, I understand it. Like I understand what happened, you know, but when they're at the home life, it's just like, man, like you start thinking like, what could I have done? And I'm hoping what first their foundation, we get to a point to where there's no more, no more suicides, you know, in the, in the community. Well, I think that's one of the ways that you guys are, are so successful is because you are focusing on mental health. Like I'm sure, I'm sure there are other things that you would help out with, but it is like, Hey, got it. Uh, you know, there are foundations that, that cover just a wide array, whatever we can do to help on, on anything and everything, which is important. But I yeah. think because you guys are like mental health laser focus, yeah, it is, it, it's less stray voltage and it's just like, okay, boom, we are, we are locked in. We are fenced in on this. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yes, yeah, definitely mental health focused. And, you know, I, I actually brought this up in my little speech I did at the real estate, but I, I was in that dark spot at one point in, in, my, in my life where I actually wanted to take my own life. So I'm, I look back and I'm like, man, like 
I could not believe I was at that point. And I look at where I'm at now. I'm like, man, I shouldn't be here. Right. And that's where I'm like, I'm so passionate about preventing people to get in that point. And I'm like, man, I understand it. I was there. I almost, almost took my life and look where I'm at now. Like I'm, I'm very successful in my business. And I'm like, this is where you can go. Where I, I thought I was at rock bottom. I was like, this is it. There's nothing else for me. And I dug myself out of it and got to where I am now. And I'm like, this could be you too. So if you think you're, you lost everything, you think you're rock bottom, it's not the end. You just got to get through it. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things is it, you feel alone sometimes, right? And I, and I think one of the great things about foundations like this, not only do you connect the boys back together, but it's it's weird when you start like getting into that space, like how many of those people in the civilian space want the opportunity to help out? You know, like it's mm-hmm. so awkward for us. Like I remember the first time I asked someone about a nonprofit, you know, like one of my civilian friends, I'm like, hey, like, I, you know, like how do you ask someone to give money for something? And they're like, no, 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 like, I've been looking for a way to give back to the people that did all these things, you know, during GWAT and all these other things and to, and to help you guys out. So I think giving those people the opportunity to be, uh, you know, participants in, in the military and, and, and the solutions that we're looking at is the better way to look at it. And I, I struggle with that a lot. Like I, I hate asking for money or, or whatever, mm. but really what you're doing is you're giving them the opportunity to participate. So I think that's super important in the, the mental health thing and make sure that nobody feels alone out there and, and bringing it all together. I think what you guys are doing is, is pretty radical. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, that is a hard thing for us. Like as, especially I think probably just an operator community with the type of personalities is like asking for help. Right. So we don't want to ask for help. We don't want to say we need help. And then like when it comes to bringing awareness and foundations, like we don't want to ask people like, Hey man, like, can you donate some money? Like it's just not who we are. <clears throat> but when you, but there's people that want to, they want to help you. And that's where you kind of just got to let go of like, in a way you got to let go of your ego and put yourself out there. Right. Like, I don't care if I'm going to be embarrassed by me asking for money or asking for help or asking people to donate, but like people are so, so willing to do that. Like, um, I'll give you a great example. So, um, Dustin Poirier, gosh, I'm sure you know who he is. UFC fighter, mm-hmm. right? I met him cause he used to stay, he stays at my vacation rentals. He actually just left yesterday from one of the rentals but la- I, don't, I don't like to you know i, I never want to abuse a relationship right i never want to use someone's position such as him and i asked him last year i said hey man um it, it came up because uh eric was like um do you know anybody that can like sponsor like the the beverages for the event and i said you know what i said dustin has this he just launched his bourbon line called rare so he was, he was coming in and I said, Hey man, I'm not looking for a discount or anything like that. But I said, if I buy these bottles of, of rare, um, would you maybe wait, would you mind signing a few of the bottles for our auction? And we're going to auction them off. And we'll also bring awareness to, to his foundation, the good fight foundation. And he was like, brother, what do you need? Tell me like, I, you know, he was like, I'll post it on social media. And he did him and his wife were sharing it on social media. The first air foundation, we, you know, he signed the bottles. We auctioned them off. We, we actually got about almost $500 a bottle for the auction. Yeah, it was really good. And then we, I think we want, what's the name of the, uh, what's the name of the Hold on. bourbon? Again? I got it right here. Actually. Uh, rare. Um, I was trying to look. I thought I heard rare, yeah, r- but then rare. when I try and look up rare, yeah. rare bourbon on here. I, this is it right here, actually. 
have it in my office. Rare stash. Rare, Rare stash. stash. So nice. So check this out. So we bought like I forgot how many cases I bought of this stuff. I mean, I literally loaded up my truck of cases from this, right? And then uh, we got them all. So we got them engraved We're first there, and then we put all the fallen initials oh, over man. over a boys on the bottles. So Dude, that's badass. Know, can you see that pretty good? I know it's like the glare. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's awesome. So we 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 did that, and um, and we gave that out at the event. Um, so we. Oh, I should say we um, we sold them at the event for a higher price to raise money for the for the foundation. Um, so it was really good. And then Eric got these uh, whiskey glasses made with like first air on it. So you know, it, it's one of those things where, like I said, like I don't want to go ask for the help, but I'm so glad I did. Even with someone at a status level like you know Poirier, it's just nice to see someone like that where they're like, yes, like I want to help you, like I want to do this, and you're just like it's just like a very like thankful feeling when people, you know, are, are yeah. willing to do that. Like I even bought one of his bottles myself, you know, like one of the signed bottles. Cause I'm buying this myself. Nice. I'm never going to, never going to open Dude, this one. These, I'm on the site, man. These things are, uh, and it's awesome. Looking. Oh, it's great bourbon too. It really is good. I'm a bourbon snob. And, uh, his number two is called number two. It's delicious. Like it's, it's my kind of, my kind of style, like flavor uh, of bourbon. But yeah, you know, Nice. People are willing to help. It, you just have to ask for it, right? You just have to say, hey, man, I need a little help. I don't think I've ever asked for help and someone was just like, nah, get out of here. You know, like when you're authentic and, Beat and, there. Yeah, and you got to like for a genuine good cause, it's not like I'm like, hey, man, can you give me $50,000? Like, I'm like, hey, like, can you just help bring some awareness to this? People are just like, yeah, like, yes, I want to help you. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, good people doing good things. It's like, it's a, one big team, you know, like everybody's trying to do something good out there in the world, I think, especially guys like Dustin, who, you know, he's a, he's a great guy. And I, and I think there's, there's very few causes that are more righteous, you know, like combat control. And I've, I've said this, I think it was the most dangerous per capita uh, career field to be in during GWAT. You know what I mean? Like the, the career field went through a lot, you know, all you guys went through a lot. And I, and I think the first, our foundation uh, trying to keep it all together and, and raise awareness and, and take care of the guys that are, that are still here with us and, and remember the, the fallen, uh, I, I don't think there's a more righteous cause than that. So it, it, it would be surprising if you went to a good person and asked for a little bit and they said, no, mm -hmm. you know, understanding, you know, about combat control. I don't know. I sound like I'm sucking up to combat control and most of the time I'm making fun, but like, I'm just trying to be serious for a moment. Yeah. yeah oh my gosh. See, I don't, oh, yeah. they wouldn't let noodle arms like me into the crew. Field. You're damn, you're damn right. <laughs> that's right. No, you're right. And you know, that's, that's kind of a cool thing um, about the foundation is the board members are not all combat controllers, right? Like some of the board members have never been in the military. Um, like one of the board members is um, like a, a, a gold star wife. Another board member is a, uh, a doctor who's you know never been in the military, but he's like, I want to help you guys. I want to use my connections. Uh, the other one is um, the owner of sports clips, like the owner of sports clips, you know, like yeah, like yeah, right. That's wild. Yeah, he actually he yeah. actually put um he put it on on their NASCAR. Like he put like the lightning bolt like first there on the NASCAR and all that. And it's just like man, like the owner of Sport Clip wants to help us, and he's part of the foundation. And like people want to help you, you just ask for it, and 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 they will. 
Perfect. Well, man, hey, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. But we always ask before uh, we wrap up, we got some time constraints. Um, you know, you went you went through a lot. You had a, a way more unique Air Force experience than I even knew about. You know, like we've kind of known each other for a long time, but like I never knew about all the other stuff. But, um, you know, our audience is, is mostly like the, the younger folks looking to get into the career fields and all that other stuff. Uh, so we asked for for one piece of advice. If I, you know, I was a 17 year old kid looking into combat control or any of the aspect war uh, career fields. Uh, what's the one piece of advice that you get from you? Oh, just, just one. Um, or, or what, uh, you know, you do you, man. I don't know. You know, I guess if I had to go with just one, I, I, I heard this literally on day one and, and I always, I still use this today. Your reputation starts on day zero, right? Like it's day one. Your, your reputation has started. You can't be a dirtbag and then try to fix that reputation in two months and a year later. Like reputation starts day one. And that reputation applies to a lot more than just like what people are thinking. It's your physical fitness ability, right? So if you're a 17-year-old kid, your reputation is your physical fitness ability. It's how you show up. It's how you present yourself. It's how you speak. It's everything, right? It's, it's your whole character as a young man. So... A lot of people, I think, kind of forget the reputations day one and they maybe they get a little mouthy with the cadre, get a little attitude, right? Show up a little sloppy. Oh, I'll get in shape when I get to boot camp, right? Things like that. And I, I've, I've heard that so many times. Oh, I'll, I'll get in good shape when I go to boot camp. I'll be ready for selection. Like what? Like, no, you should be preparing years before you go to selection. So reputation begins on, you know, literally day zero. So show up prepared, show up and... Like, this is a great example of, like, you, Trent. Like, you were my cadre, right? And if I was a just a complete dirtbag going through the pipeline, like, you're looking for guys to, to be on team with, right? Like, you want to be able to trust guys. I think a lot of times students forget that. Like, like oh, I just got to, like, be the gray man and hide from the cadre and just get by. Like, no, like... You want the cadre to want you on their team. You want that guy to say, I want to, I want to, I want to be like fighting next to this guy. So, you know, reputation's right there. It begins. I said, I was on team with you. I was on team with Para. I mean, selection cadre, right? Like, I mean, it, it's there. So yeah, reputation day one, day zero, however you want to say it. That's it. It is nice coming back to, uh, to team and, and, you know, seeing all the, the guys that went through the pipeline and hopefully they don't want to kick your butt in the locker room because of the kind of cadre you were. So maybe a little <laughs> bit of that. Yeah. I mean, like, I, yeah, I mean, literally I, I had so many of my instructors, like uh, Ron Walker, he was my CCS instructor and I'm on team with him. You know, like there's just so many guys you go through with that are your instructors. And so, yeah. You meet some great folks along the way, man. Oh yeah. Like it's, it's, it's not even... It's a, it's a different world. It's a different world. But, well, dude, thanks. It's good seeing you again. Um, thanks for everything that you're doing for the community. Um, continue that service. Please don't stop. Um, we need we need folks like you doing what you're doing. We need the the kind folks that are that are also donating to the charity. And and uh, and again, I already said it, but thanks again for what you're doing. Yeah, appreciate really it. Really appreciate yeah, it. Appreciate you guys. And then everybody. Yeah, man. And then everybody is out there. Uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a review. Um, tell us how bad we're doing and how much you hate Trent's hair. <laughs> <laughs>